RCR with Paul Brennan, Reality Check Radio. John Anderson is a sixth-generation farmer and grazier from New South Wales. He spent 19 years from 1989 in the Australian Parliament. He served as Deputy Prime Minister of Australia for six years between 99 and 2005 under John Howard. And he has recently been published on topics such as civic freedoms, global food security, modern slavery, and the economy. He currently farms on the family property, and he's also active through various directorships in public speaking and in the not-for-profit sector. You've probably, well, you've heard of him, I'm sure, from his political career, if you have any knowledge of Australian politics or any sort of history. But his recent contributions to public debate have included his Conversations YouTube and podcast series. That's where he interviews various thought leaders from around the world. And you can find that at johnanderson.net.au. His interviews have now been viewed and listened to millions of times. I'm one of them. And the influence they've had on the wider debate is growing all the time. And we're talking to John because he was a speaker at the Forum on the Family um, event in Auckland in June, at the end of June. And his topic, Woke Culture. John Anderson, welcome to Reality Check Radio. Thanks for giving us some time. It's nice to, to talk to you. Well, it's great to be with you uh, and with your listeners. Thank you. Now, um, I'm thinking back 19 years in Parliament and those years as Deputy Prime Minister. Okay, they're, they're a few years ago, but at the tip of the spear of leadership in you know, a significant country, was there any sign of this approaching woke culture? Was it? Did it, did it make itself known or, or did it show itself to you back then? I think the answer is yes, although it's probably a bit like the uh, the slowly boiling water with a frog in it. Um, I think for me what comes to mind is that I was a young member of parliament. I was very young, actually, uh, only 31 or so, when the Berlin Wall came down. And what happened when the Berlin Wall came down is that it really looked like the Western democratic model had won out. And you even had the American author, uh, Francis Fukuyami, writing a book called The End of History. And that was a play on Karl Marx's view of the end of history because Marx said it will be a communist or socialist nirvana state. Uh, and what Fukuyama was saying was, no, it's turned out to be democracy, capitalistic democracy. And I think it introduced an era of um, great complacency, uh, of we've won out, there was a bit of hubris with it. Uh, frankly, I think part of the problem we're in trouble with Russia and the Ukraine is that we didn't help Russia build a democracy like we did in Japan after the Second World War and in Europe after the Second World War with the Marshall Plan. Uh, we thought we could just now go and live it up, extract the peace dividend, spend the money on ourselves. So I think at that level, it was evident that we were making a big mistake. I remember was my own father-in-law had been a very serious geopolitical thinker with the Australian Navy, and he said, this is, this is a worry, and his worry was rogue state actors. He thought there'd be all sorts of people who would flow in, think terrorism, what have you. Well, he was right there. Perhaps he didn't foresee what was going to happen with Russia and China in those days. But I also think there was, with this new, we'll just do what we like sort of phase of life, a beginning of the loss of a sense of commitment to others. That might be a funny way to put it. But I think you've seen this drift in the name of freedom towards license. I'll do what I want to do. My 
even my body is my private property. Don't you interfere with it. I will do exactly as I please. Whereas in reality, we have to live in community. You know, people have to make way for us when we're born. They have to make room for us, have to look after us. Uh, and that applies really in some senses right through life. So I think the signs were there. Certainly when I left office, so Australia was in great shape. We had money in the bank, no government debt. Uh, prosperity was rising. Wages were rising. It was a little purple patch. But the storm clouds were probably there. Sorry, long answer. No, no, good answer. But it wasn't too long after the generation that fought a war went through hell and and obviously wanted to create a stable, you know, environment, a, a stable platform, the antithesis of that. And and you know, you'd think that would have that would have, you know, stuck harder. It would have cemented itself in a lot more firmly than it kind of looks like it it ended up doing. Yeah, the Americans talk about the great generation or the greatest generation, and that's their way of, or was their way of reverencing the people who'd survived the horrors of uh, the Great Depression, of the war, of Korea, probably Vietnam, uh, the Cold War, and had maintained their hope and commitment to their country right through that. And interestingly enough, they faded quite quickly. Uh, once the end came in terms of, you know, just simple ageing process. And one, one of the things that was very noticeable was that they tended to be figures of the centre uh, rather than the left or certainly the extreme right. Uh, and as they passed on, one of the really noticeable things that's simply undeniable is that overwhelmingly now uh, in academia, whereas it used to be evenly split, perhaps reflecting society, and influence society so that the centre was what mattered. You've now had this drift towards, not drift now, it's, it's been very rapid, progressive movement towards uh, uh, the, the values of uh, the left, if you like, of wokery, uh, such that, you know, uh, campuses all around the world, but particularly in America and Australia and New Zealand, you're hard-pressed to find a centre or a centre-right academic. I mean, literally hard-pressed. Uh, this has played out too in the media. Uh, it's played out in the classroom. And so there's not that sort of desire to centre anymore that there used to be. And I think it's having quite a profound impact. In fact, I'd say if you seek the fruits of all of this, you'll find it in a pandemic of loneliness, of a breakdown of trust, of atomization, of what's called identity politics, where we emphasise our differences, not the things we have in common. Uh, and I would say that particularly for our young people, we ought to be truly worried about the figures revealing their levels of anxiety and depression and self-harm. Yeah, so the incubator of this now woke perfect storm, can we call it that, was academia, was it? Oh, well, look, I actually subscribe to the theory of... Uh, of, of um, of um, cultural Marxism, the attempt from the 1930s to the Frankfurt School and what have you, uh, to say, well, what's holding up the revolution is the institutions of Western freedom, and we need to sort of undermine all of them, and that'll bring on the revolution, and that carried through the works of people like Gramsci and Foucault, and the, that famous term that was coined in 1967, um, the march of the left through the institutions, so I don't know that it was just academia, but it was a major target. The churches were a major target. 
I mean, that's amazing how, um, how, how, how sort of confused a lot of churches are now about their real mission and uh, how weak they are as well. Uh, but I think family was another thing, frankly, um, politics, arts, drama. I, I don't know that you could single out one, but the problem with academia is that whereas once people used to really explore ideas, in most of our campuses now there's a cloying adherence to a quite narrow view of the world and an astonishing resistance to anybody who might want to challenge it, who might want to say, well, you know, really, is this going so well? How's this playing out in our society? Yeah, well, there's a there's a, almost a, a need to destroy someone who not just sort of shut them down, but almost destroy them. You know, it, it goes to that level. It's Well, it does. Yeah. It really does. Uh, you know, I had the extraordinary case in America of... Uh, of um, Brett Weinstein, who was an academic uh, on a university campus, a smaller university in America, they called a a non-white day. Uh, And he thought he was going to buck that trend. So as an academic and a lecturer, he turned up and was frozen out of the place. He had to resign, had to leave. Uh, And so you do get this you know, the old saying attributed wasn't Voltaire, but it was a, it's always attributed to Voltaire. Uh, I may disagree with you, but I'll defend to the death your right to say it. Has now become, if you dare to disagree with me, you're a lesser person and I'll cancel you. And I think that one of the things it's led to is an enormous amount of self-censoring. If I had a dollar for every time an Australian said to me, I actually disagree with the zeitgeist. As they, that's as they using that word in New Zealand. Zeitgeist means yeah, it's a yeah, it's, it's, word. it's used, it's used, yeah, yeah. So if you dare to challenge it, uh, you know you're a bad person, and and you will be cancelled. You, you know, I will fight you to the death to silence you, and it's so illogical and it's so demeaning, and this is one of the other problems we have. Whereas once there was a a very firm commitment to the idea that you recognise the equality of all those around you. Now we talk equality, but we don't mean it. We mean conformity uh, and we mean numbers and we mean quotas. Uh, Whereas once there was a genuine and deep commitment at the basis of of Western uh, culture to the idea of the value of every individual, whether you agreed with them or not. Now, it wasn't always on it as well as it should have, but you didn't challenge the notion. What do you make of the, you know, the words that are used uh, here, which are kind of euphemisms now, equity, well-being, safety. Those in an ideal world are good words and they mean good things, but they've been sort of rotated around 180 degrees. The use of words, got anything to say about that? Well, those who control language and those who control history control the future and it's really quite frightening so many words have really effectively been reinvented or stripped of their meaning or revolutionized in the sense that what was on the top is now on the bottom and what was on the bottom is on the top and so you see you take equity it all so often turns out to be a very narrow idea of well there ought to be a certain number of people of a certain gender uh, in a certain number of board positions or we don't have equity, so therefore we will pursue targets and then they become actual quotas. Well, where do you stop? Uh, should we turn around and say, well, actually, men are overrepresented in jail, so in future we will make certain that there's an exact representation of men and women in jail? 
Yeah. Um, you know, um, uh, there's a disproportionate number of Asian children doing extremely well at maths. Therefore, we'll have quotas and only a certain proportion, a matching proportion of Asians will be allowed to excel in math. I mean, it's a road to totalitarianism. And it also denies agency and choice. I have met many people in life who have said, I don't aspire to great wealth. I've met many people who have said, not in the remotely interested in political power. Um, I make life choices to live my life differently. That doesn't make you a lesser person. And yet if you listen to the, the, the sort of nonsense that's carried on at the moment, you ought to be very angry if you're not given a place uh, at the table because you belong to such and such a grouping and uh, members of that grouping are underrepresented in this profession or around that boardroom table or whatever. I mean, it's, it, it defies all logic and common sense. And it certainly strips out the opportunity for civilised conversation and decent interaction, in my word, in my view. The anger that surrounds some of this is just amazing. You mentioned people who aren't, you know, as ambitious to the nth degree. And I think that's probably most people. They, they, yeah. they want to get by in life and they want to, you know, carry out the things that uh, seem to enrich life, you know, have a family um, and, and get by and, and do an honest day's work, etc., and it's interesting because I don't know if you've heard about this uh, song that's gone huge um, or done huge things in the U.S., Rich Man North of Richmond, by um, a guy called uh, Oliver Anthony. And and it's if you haven't heard it, I'll just quickly explain. It's been picked up as an anthem for, you know, the blue-collar American. And I guess any person, blue-collar person, or, or uh, people that you were just referring to would uh, pick up on and, and relate to the words of – so there's, I guess the point I'm going to try to make here, or the question I'm trying to ask is, there does seem to be a disconnect. And you talked about self-censoring. Talk to your average person, and they don't seem to be on board with any of this. Do you think, I'm, do you I'm think sure that's, that's the case? Yeah. I think that's absolutely right. They watch the ping pong ball being played over their heads. One of, one of my neighbours out in country Australia said, said to me in a laid-back way a little while ago, he's got three kids. He said, oh, I'm not worried about all of this. The Australian people are sensible. They'll self-centre. And I understand what he's saying, but without serious pushback against the people who are trying to stop the self-centering, uh, you know, it's not going to happen. Now, this, this is a battle that's being played over the heads of a great majority, uh, most of whom I think really feel confused and concerned about it, but they're wondering where the leadership to help them help their society recenter will come from. And there's another very interesting example, uh, or, or endless examples out of the United Kingdom. The number of women who really desperately want to have more time or devote themselves completely to raising their children for a few years uh, is staggeringly high, but they feel massively pressured to conform uh, because they're told they really feel this that to be significant, you have to have a career. But the, the, their whole being seems to be wired towards saying, well, for a few years, I actually want to be a mother. But somehow that's downgraded or it's delegitimized. And it's just an example of the way in which I think people feel obliged to conform. Uh, and, and, and in a flourishing, a flourishing society is made up of people, I think, who have genuine choice they feel comfortable and able to make choices. I know I don't sound like it now, uh, talking, uh, you know, as a former politician and so forth, but 
I spent a lot of time in the Australian bush, and I'm often struck by the deep contentedness of some of the people I've known who have not had a lot of money. I, I think of a couple of drovers once mm. just saying to me when I was uh, still a teenager, you know, Johnny never wanted the flashlights. I just love what I do. And he said, the, uh, the, you know, uh, the city folk have no idea of the joys that we country people have, even if we don't have their sophistication. They're happy with their lot. And if you looked at what they're paid and so forth, well, it's not a priority for them and it's not very high, but they're happy. Are they the great hope? <laughs> yeah. Yes, think? absolutely. Properly captured, yes, properly led. But that's our problem. Uh, you know, again, I'd be a wealthy man if I had a dollar for every time an outstanding young person has said to me, I'd actually quite like to have a go at politics, but it's just too horrible. It's too nasty. It's too intrusive. You're never respected for at least having good motivation. Uh, standing, uh, I was asked to speak to uh, Wealth uh, Advisory Lunch a little while ago uh, in Brisbane. And I was standing there talking to five or six, you'd have to say, very impressive, high-achieving um, older people. And they were decrying the state of politics. And the question that they were asking was the very one that all those people were talking about are asking, why can't the politicians see this? Why can't they see that? It's so obvious to the rest of us. And uh, I just, after we talked about it for a while and I acknowledged that it's a real problem, I just said, now, can I ask you a polite question? And I mm. don't think I'm judging you. I'm just I'm making a point, I suppose. How many of you encourage your best and brightest kids to go forward into public life? And they all chuckled and said, yeah, we see the point. We wouldn't do it to them. Well, that's well, a problem, actually. Yeah. I understand it, but it's a problem. We need our best and brightest out there leading us through the tumultuous economic and strategic and social challenges that are threatening our very freedoms, in my view. Okay, so when you were in Parliament, 89, so that's going back, yeah, uh, Berlin Wall coming down period, Deputy Prime Minister, was that politics then? Presumably you, you were bright and achieving and, and you were motivated to be part of that. Yeah, I was quite aggressively headhunted, if that's the word, by a couple of politicians that I deeply respected. And they said, you know, really, you should have a go and encouraged me to have a go and then stood behind me while I got into it. It was one of the things that strikes me. There are two things about Australian politics. I, I suspect it's not different across the other side of the pond, if I can uh, describe it that way. Um, when I went in, there were there was a still a serious contest of ideas based on philosophies. So you had three broad philosophies. You had conservatism, you had liber uh, liberalism, not libertarianism, but liberalism. And you had, uh, you know, the sort of left of centre, what the Europeans would call the Christian Democrats. Um, and all of them were still understood and people looked at the lens or looked at policy issues through the lens of the sort of Australia that they believed in, according to whether they were a conservative or a liberal or a, or, um, a left of centre Labor person. And all of them, I think, had a certain decency and nobility about them, and all of them had powerful arguments to make. They did. They really did. Uh, you know, I, I, I actually really understood the arguments of a lot of the left wing in those days with their desire to ensure that the marginalised and the less well-off the lonely were given an opportunity to be part of the Australian family. That was a noble vision. 
disagreed with what they wanted to do to try and achieve it, but the vision was noble. And I suppose you'd say the Liberals believe that governments should, uh, particularly in economic terms, minimise their footprint, and Conservatives believed that there were many things uh, that had stood the test of time that should be preserved. It's all gone. It's all gone. And so what you get now is this endless scrapping over day-to-day issues. The result is what might be called managerialism and opportunism and a fair bit of nastiness in the mix. And those people we're talking about in the middle look at it in utter despair and say, has anybody got a vision for the country? Yeah. Well, we're facing down a general election in just a few months, and um, I've been around for a few, and I would say this time round, it's probably the most fractured electorate there is around. Plenty of people are even talking about, you know, just not voting, that they they can't really line up behind anyone. And there seems to be a sense that, you know, the political system that we've relied on and believed in all this time is almost broken, almost not fit for purpose. Do you think there's something in that? Do we have to start thinking of how to reinvent the system? Because the longer it careens on like this, the worse it gets, the darker the space we end up in. What do you think about that? Yeah, it worries me. That's, that's. I mean, you know, when I left Parliament, I people say I don't believe you, but it's true. I thought I'll, I, I want to go back to the bush. And I used to dream of growing wheat crops again and, you know, looking at, Fat Hereford cattle in those days. We haven't had Herefords now for a long time. But anyway, that's what I used to dream of. Yeah. Uh, and um, uh, But <laughs> I, for what it's worth, I, you know, I've tried to sort of have a little bit of a say again because I think these issues matter so much and cynicism will destroy us if we're not careful. I do think we're in danger of eating ourselves out from within. I actually think I'll go further. I think we're, at a, and I said this in Wellington, we need to stop and think that we may be actually at a civilizational moment. What do I mean by that? Wow. Well, my okay. father went through one. My father went through one. He uh, he enlisted uh, and, and ended up in the North African desert during the Second World War, and it was a close-run thing. He was almost killed himself, and the West very nearly lost that war, the West with Russia, very nearly. What would the world be like today if Nazism, well, it would have been a civilizational moment that went wrong. We're at another one now. Not only do we face enormous geopolitical dangers, really glad to see some evidence from New Zealand, by the way, that they're starting to realise just how dangerous the world is and are starting to talk about defence again Yeah, because it's been an area where not much has happened in New Zealand and we had a proud history of, of working together, ANZAC and so forth. Um, and, and we need to keep in mind that a civilization runs really on the engine of powerful ideas and the fuel is a broad agreement on the beauty and the power of those ideas. And the, 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 the keys really to Western civilization, I think, were uh, it, it, it might be summed up as the idea of the golden rule. It was a Judeo-Christian idea that uh, you ought to treat your neighbor as you treat yourself. You must respect others and everyone's equal before the law. No one's above it. No one's beneath it. Uh, that there ought to be a commitment to justice and to fair play. Uh, and that our common interests are tied up in cooperation, uh, the golden rule, doing for your neighbour what do you have them do for yourself. That has given way, it's almost crunched out by identity politics. And identity politics has its genesis, I think, in the idea that Jonathan Haidt, who's one of the people I've talked to, 
he, he uh, and uh, another fellow wrote a brilliant book called The Coddling of the American Mind. And he says we're making well-intentioned but three terrible mistakes. And your listeners might like to ponder how this is playing out. He said, firstly, we teach our kids always to trust their feelings. They're more important than facts. Well, you know, hey, mum, it's a hot day and I'm going to dive into this river. And I don't believe that sign over there that says there's crocodiles. I feel hot and I know I'll feel cool when I've been in the water. Don't ignore the facts. The second thing we do is that we say whatever, we teach our kids whatever doesn't kill them will make you weaker. Remember in our day you used to say if it doesn't kill you, it'll make you stronger? Now we say weaker. So we helicopter them. We, we've taught ourselves that suffering's unnormal and not natural. And if I'm suffering, it's someone else's fault, and I'm probably a victim, and there's an evil victim maker out there. And that feeds into the third narrative, which is perhaps the most dangerous of all. We teach our kids that life is a battle between good people and bad people. That's not what I was taught. I was taught, particularly at the school I went to, there was an enormous emphasis on the idea that every one of us could do the right thing or the wrong thing, and we would from time to do, time do the wrong thing and the right thing. In other words, the old salts and eats and line, the, the dividing line between good and bad, it's not between, dare I say it, New Zealand and Australian or men and uh, women or black and white or Catholic or Baptist or atheist. It's somewhere across every human heart. And when we lose sight of that, we start to insist on our own way. And one of the first casualties then is forgiveness. We don't forgive. We say, if you disagree with me, you're a bad person. You've got to be cancelled. And relationships don't work and a culture doesn't work when there's no forgiveness, there's no you, give and take. You can't move on, right? No. And horrendously, I have to say that that's a worry I have looking at America now and the refusal of the former president to accept that the democratic process, uh, you know, unfolded in such a way uh, as to mean that there was a new president. Um, you can't be like that. You, you've got to accept. I think, the verdict of the law, uh, and you've got to work graciously when it doesn't go your way. Mm. Um, you mentioned uh, feelings versus facts, and really that that encompasses the transgender movement, doesn't it, where feelings have overridden facts, and, and, her, and that has been kind of weaponized in a way. Um, do you see this movement as sort of peak woke, does that indicate we're, we're peaking on wokeness? And how do you explain this phenomenon? You've talked to many people, and I'm sure you've thought about this as we all have ourselves, trying to sort of work out what happened here, what's driving it, what's the power force behind it. Um, it is that fact versus feelings thing. Does this show a peaking of wokeness, or is this just, just launching in, into a more intense phase of it? What do you think? Uh, I'm inclined to think it's a peaking in that we know from the research that this is one that, where those people we've been talking about, the middle New Zealanders, the middle Australians, the bulk of the community think that that, that the idea of allowing uh, you know a, a, a transgender weightlifter to compete against women, for example, is just nuts. It's gone too far. And we're told we should listen to the science on climate, for example. Well, why have we ignored biology here? Um, I don't want to sound unsympathetic to particularly young people who are really grappling with this. It requires great love, great patience, and tremendous support. 
But if you look at the figures out of America, you can tell that there is an enormous element of social contagion here because of the explosion in the number of children presenting with dysphoria. Turn out, it turns out that they're overwhelmingly children who are white and from middle and upper class backgrounds and girls. Uh, you, you don't have to research very long to realise there's something going on here uh, that may be very sad and very serious but will not be solved by pushing children uh, in certain directions early in age before they've had a lot of support and a lot of counselling. I don't pretend to be an expert in this area. I think, though, that the truth is that, yeah, the activists have taken this too far, that people feel genuinely afraid to enter the debate, and that's my fear. They can see through it. But there's, a, there's an exhaustion factor, Paul. I think there's a sort of a, oh, good grief, you just can't win. It's easier to shut up and get on with your own life. I don't think we can be like that. And you've got to remember, particularly in my country and yours, you've got to look at the international experience. Britain started down this road earlier than us, and they've had now discovered just how bad this is. You've had the courts determine, for example, that the old idea that until you're 16 you can't make major life decisions, uh, you know, really should be upheld. And that's resulted in the closing of the most notorious of the English uh, uh, conversion uh, clinics, Tavistock, uh, and, a, and a much more heightened awareness now as people who have lived through a transition and now want to detransition start to really finger people who did not give them proper professional advice and counselling. The warning signs are there, and I think middle Australia and middle New Zealand, the backbone of any community, can I say that? We need to recognise that. It's your middle classes. It's your mm. the good, honest people who do a hard day's work and just want to get on with their own lives. They're the ones that build up and preserve a free society. They need to be engaged. So, so my answer in short is, yes, peak wokery, but I'm not sure that it's not also peak exhaustion. Pe people are just sort of so flummoxed by all this stuff. I want to ask you about your Conversations um, series. What got you started on that? The things we're talking about, Paul. Uh, I was talking with a good friend of mine in Sydney, and coincidentally we had personally um, – uh, entertained Neil Ferguson, the uh, Scottish, though now working in America, uh, political economist, or, or sorry, economic historian, rather, probably the most prominent in the world. And he and his wife, Anne Hersiali, we'd hosted to a small private function in Sydney. And the conversation was, we thought, really interesting and really important. So we asked him whether he'd be happy to float uh, some of the ideas in a recorded conversation, and he kindly said yes. So that sort of kicked us off. We started to record a few, and we put them aside. Uh, we initially put them aside before we launched, uh, so we had a few in the can. And then a man I'd never heard of came to Sydney, uh, Jordan Peterson, and he was selling to absolute sellout crowds. And I thought, what is going on here? And I, I, I actually was asked to compare one of the nights, so, and I'd never even heard of Jordan Peterson. Hmm. And, and, and it was in a very nice town hall uh, in a Sydney suburb. They were hanging from the rafters, and he walked in, and they, they gave him a standing ovation, and he talked for, for an hour and a half. They gave him another one. He took questions. And third, 
and, and what's my point? My point is the room was jam-packed with young Australians. And I thought, this is not a rock star. He's not a motivational speaker. He's not a famous politician. What is it that he's got? And he's critiquing modern society and he's recognising it's not working for young people and they're coming out to hear him. And he's offering hard medicine and they're lapping it up. He's basically saying to them, you need to be responsible. You need to accept responsibility. You won't find meaning in life without responsibility. Go back to your bedrooms, pull your shoulders back, face who you are, then go out onto the, you know, then go out and be noble. Uh, and don't think an empathy culture will fix you. Well, and I thought, what's he mean by empathy culture? And then I sort of realised, of course, he's saying as a society where everyone's either a victim or a victim maker, and that just divides you right down the middle. So you, you, you have real and perceived, there are real victims, a lot of perceived victims, people who play on something has gone wrong, you know, build it up into an absolute storm. But the beauty of it is you can weaponise it. You can then hate the people who are painted as the villains. And that's why it was full of uh, young men, by the way, because they've, they grew up, they're growing up in a society where their masculinity, just their masculinity, is enough to have them written off as toxic. And they're saying, wait a minute, I don't, I don't think I'm toxic or I don't want to be toxic. What's going on? Okay. So I, I recorded one with him and we put that up. And, of course, that was it. We were on the map. It's just as simple as that. Uh, and we found there was an enormous appetite for long-form conversations that was Easter of, what, 2018, so we've been going a bit over five years. YouTube tells us we've had, I think, uh, I think the last time I looked was 85 million downloads. Wow. That's, which is quite a few. Yeah, that's, that's, that's more than Australia, New Zealand and all the, you know, that's, that's a huge country's worth of people who have watched your videos. Our model is one of no entrapment, no clever games, no agenda, no interruption except to emphasize a point. I let myself do that sometimes. Yeah. Sometimes I'll pull somebody up and say, that's a really important point. Can you repeat it? What do you mean? But uh, it's, And I do read the commentary on most of them, so I want to know what people are thinking. And the minute I interrupt or show an agenda, they all know what I think. They know, broadly speaking, uh, where I sit philosophically, but they don't like me injecting uh, an, any sort of agenda. The, my model is to do what the mainstream media doesn't do anymore, let these people talk, these thought leaders talk, so that the listener can decide whether they agree or not. Yeah, Jordan Peterson, he is a phenomenon and an unlikely one in a way because, you know, in the traditional sense, okay, he's sort of got a bit of a Kermit the Frog type voice. He's a weedy guy, um, an academic, yet there's some kind of magic that he has. Can you put your finger on it? Yeah, he cares. Uh, I've asked myself a question from time to time, and I, I know him reasonably well now, and he cares. And I'll give you a little illustration. It's not just that he listens incredibly intently and takes seriously what it is you're saying to him. That's a, I mean, that's a huge mark of respect for people, and they pick it up. But, you know, I mean, even a member of my own family said, oh, Dad, you know, he's, uh, I, I, he's a, bit, uh, a bit of an anti-feminist. I'm not so sure. And then I stopped and I thought about it and I thought, I became aware of a young farm worker. He worked in our business. And he met Jordan and he was deeply troubled because he had a child who had a serious illness. And this young fellow came up to me and he said, you know, that, that, that Canadian guy, he didn't even know who he was. He said he gave me an hour explaining to me how I needed to keep supporting my wife through this really tough time 
so that we can not only look after the boy, but we can keep ourselves in a good place. And I thought, how many of Jordan's critics have given up an hour of their time? I hate to think what that would be worth in professional terms. For a young man who's just approached him and said, look, I'm really grappling with something. And you say, um, his wife, as it turned out, was deeply, deeply, deeply thankful. Wow. So I think that's, I would say he listens, and he listens yep. because he's genuinely engaged. He actually genuinely cares. And that's, uh, you know, I put that out there as a gentle challenge to those who might want, might want to say, oh, you know, don't agree with his position on, um, mm. you know, this issue or that issue. This is a guy who I've seen firsthand will put himself out for others, and, and, and that's at the heart, I think. There's a sense. He's an uncle to a lot of there's no other way of putting it. Very uncertain young people who are trying to make sense of a world that seems to have gone mad. Yeah, the good point you make about men before and, you know, just being male is is kind of, for many, is perceived as being toxic, you know, automatically. Um, what do you think males need to do? Uh, do they need to, you know, rediscover their masculinity, be proud to show it off it is does the world need it right now what, what do you think about that no i think that's a really good and important question uh there's an ugly masculinity that is bordering on toxic uh you know i ran into it the other day with a i got a taxi driver and I, as i got into the car he said uh, he said mate he said can you understand women and off he went and he'd gotten involved with a woman who was married and she'd left the kids and then she got a guilt complex and went back to the kids. And everything he said smacked of, this is about me. And it was an act, a sort of a showy, brash, ugly, well, it was a toxic masculinity. No other way of putting it. Uh, I actually think that a, 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 a real man will some, be somebody who will be as gentle as possible for as long as possible, but then will, if necessary, use all of his strength to defend principles and loved ones and others from harm, if I can put it that way. Yeah. Uh, so there's a right masculinity and there's a wrong masculinity. And here's the rub. I suspect our culture at the very time when we need to be raising our, our young men up to be very considerate, uh, very masculine in the sense that they will fiercely defend things that defend things that matter. Uh, that uh, you know, you you know that if uh, if their children were in danger, they would uh, put their own lines. They'd get into the shark tank. That's the sort of man you want. But I suspect our culture, at the same time as it's saying condemning men, is actually making them worse. And to be really blunt, I, I, my guess is that porn's had a bit to do with that. We were talking about those middle-class white and uh, middle- and upper-class white girls presenting with gender dysphoria. Porn has probably done immense damage to romance, uh, and it's probably meant that a lot of girls now are asked to do things by boys with no romance involved uh, and that which disgusts them. I, I don't really want to go there. It's a pretty horrible thought, uh, but I think we're probably encouraging a crudity and a lack of respect uh, uh, and I think, frankly, I think porn's probably got a bit to do with that. Yeah, I think not I agree. Subject, not a I subject agree. I'd want to go to, but I, no, no, we I think probably I, need to be more honest about it. I, I think I agree with you, and many would agree with you on that. 
it's it's been a great desensitizer in every in every way. I think it's fair to say. Okay, with everyone, all your experiences, everyone you've talked to in your series, all the thinking you've done, um, can you see, you know, what's that Sam Cooke song, <laughs> Change is Gonna Come? Can you see things changing or are we locked into this for the foreseeable future, this wokeness, this kind of way of operating? Or is there, you know, a ray of light under the door somewhere? Again, it's a really good question, and I often wonder, and even one of uh, my own kids said, oh, Dad, come on, you're getting on a bit, mate. You know, why do you bother? And I said, oh, well, I, I've got to because I care about you and, about, and I care about my grandkids. And, and I, it's, no, I do care about public policy. I, as you can see, I, I, I don't want to jump out and say, oh, yeah, it's all going to be all right. I see some positives. I see a lot of young people. The podcasts have done this. We get a constant dribble of people who come to me and say, you know, really help me think the issues through. And, you know, I've, I've seen young men do this with Jordan Peterson too. I've changed my way of thinking. I'm accepting responsibility. Uh, you know, I'm going out there and taking uh, on, a, a, on a deeper sense of commitment to those around me. And, and that's been the experience with the podcast. So there's an emerging cohort of people where, who can form the nucleus, I think, uh, of a recentering, if I can put it that way. On the other hand, gee, I don't know. You know, trust has broken down so much. Our system can't operate without trust. And I just don't know whether any more, given the, the crisis of crush, of trust in our institutions, worse than that, the ideas that underpin them is uh, easily reconciled. I hope it is because I think the wisdom of the ages tells us that while we haven't got a perfect society and we shouldn't idolise the past too much, we ought to recognise that in those fundamentals of doing to your neighbours, you'd have them do to you, the fundamentals of the rule of law, one vote, one value, no one above the law, no one below it, um, the four freedoms, freedom of speech, of assembly, of conscience and belief and of private property, those things are critical. And if you white ant them too much, and you won't, you won't pull it back. You won't have a flourishing society. You won't have a safe place where people can, you know, personally reach their best. And against that, it's worth keeping in mind the very sobering words. I've already mentioned him, but uh, uh, Neil Ferguson, the economic historian, I asked him what he thought the three greatest threats to our freedoms were. And he didn't hesitate. He said, without hesitating at all, uh, in ascending order, Islamic terrorism, if a rogue state gets a, you know, weapons of biological mass destruction or a bomb, uh, anything could happen. Uh, the second greatest danger is the possibility or, of miscalculation between the superpower and the rising superpower. That's, we all know what, how threatening the global strategic environment looks. But then he went on to say, which was, was really interesting, uh, the greatest threat to our freedom which if we could solve would help us resolve the other threats is that we no longer believe in our own history, our own values, our own ideas, our own attempts to create an environment where freedom can reign. And I think that's worth thinking about. Freedom, if, if it turns into license or into selfishness, ultimately becomes its own worst enemy. Freedom becomes the enemy of freedom. That's um, a great place to end this chat. John Anderson, thanks for giving us some time and coming on Reality Check Radio. It's been great uh, chatting with you. Thanks. I've genuinely enjoyed it. 
Uh, and my guess is there's quite an appetite for the sort of shows and programs uh, that you run. And there'll be people who won't agree with uh, things I've said and dare I say it, perhaps even things that you've hinted at. And there's your perfect opportunity to say, okay, well, let's engage with them, not just emote, not just say, don't like it, so I won't engage. Engage in a constructive discussion because no one can say we're doing all that well at the moment. <laughs> You're right. Yeah, that is the mission. Absolutely. Thanks again. Thank you. RCR with Paul Brennan, Reality Check Radio.